Okay, we're on page 23 if you're following the study guide. Otherwise, it's Isaiah 44 is where you want to open your Bible. And if you're listening to this recording on our website or our, our um, MP3 podcast channel, you can find resources at rockofages-payson.com. There you'll see all the handouts and actually some of the suggested answers along with the previous recordings. Okay, 44. We, just to recap where we looked at last time, God contrasted in chapters 44, 1 to 20, the, the working of a craftsmith who makes the idol has to hold it up, support it, whereas God himself upholds and supports his people and his chosen ones. So the strong contrast there. And where we're going to pick it up today is he also assures not only will he uphold us, he will not forget what he has promised. So, introduction thought here. Things will get worse before they get better. And actually, I, I didn't see that, but that's a quote from Batman, a recent Batman movie, I guess. Is that quote comforting or discomforting to you? Just the way it is. <laughs> that's the way life is. They'll get worse before they get better. What about God's plan for his people? Victory always. We know they're going to get better, right? So that aspect we know is true, but that whole things will get worse before they get better, that's kind of also true, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Especially as Jesus talks about we're in the end times and there'll be trials. He says, take up your cross. And he talks about the world, you know, becoming persecution increasing, false teachers increasing. So, yeah. um, Plus we all face death. Right. And the, the road that we walk... Christ the way tells us, you know, it's going to be a resurrection. There's still going to be the trials of this life and death itself. But we wait for resurrection. Things will get better. Yeah, God's not Batman. And, uh, but that is true, not just for the way it is, but especially for God's people. Uh, God had, and this, that's what we see in ancient Israel too, God had promised Jerusalem that her numbers would increase, that she would grow. That would be hard to hold on to when the city was being completely destroyed. So how could they hold to God's promise that things are going to be so great when the city itself, the walls are being torn down by the Babylonians? But in this section, God affirms that he will do what he promised. He will rebuild and restore Jerusalem. So let's read there, Isaiah 44, 21 to 22, that section. I'll I'll start us off. Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you, you are my servant. Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So we got another picture of forgiveness that's given here. What's the picture of forgiveness? You will never be forgotten. Redemption is there, not being forgotten. That's the result of forgiveness. What's a neat picture, though, if you look, kind of like depicting the way that God, how are we redeemed? Yeah, the the cloud. Like Some house cleaning, I've swept away your offenses like a cloud. Or maybe your translation says blown away. Um, The way that, you know, a, a monsoon season comes in and then the sun later on, suddenly it's not raining anymore. God says, I'm going to do that with your offenses, the way I just chase the clouds away. Kind of a unique picture of forgiveness. You've you got to admire some of the unique pictures in the Bible, like, um, was it Micah has, I've tossed your sins into the depths of the sea, you know, the, the place where you can't recover it. Here it's like uh, just blown away. Your sins like the morning mist. How is this fulfilled in the Redeemer? He's the, re- he's the reason that our sins are gone. How does the Redeemer sweep away our offenses? Well, went to the cross and took off. Yeah. everything to the cross. So picture this big cloud of sin, the offenses that stand before God, this stench cloud of sin. It comes off of us and it goes through the cross. It's taken away from us and he bears it for us. So that's a neat picture there. Why is that picture so comforting? Well, 
because those are our sins being swept away. Yeah, Jesus washes our sins, sweeps away our sins. And they, you know, the, the picture of them vanishing from before us in the same way a cloud vanishes has to be comforting. Um, I want you to consider the hymn, Morning Breaks Upon the Tomb. I'm going to read that. Morning breaks upon the tomb, Jesus scatters all its gloom. Day of triumph through the skies, see the glorious Savior rise. So picture when really our sins were swept away, wasn't it also on Easter morning as the clearness of that morning comes after the darkness of Good Friday, the rest of the Saturday Sabbath. Verse 2, you who of death are afraid, triumph in the scattered shade. Drive your anxious cares away, see the place where Jesus lay. Christian, dry your flowing tears, chase your unbelieving fears. Look on his deserted grave, doubt no more his power to save. So some more poetry to reflect on what God has done as he swept away our offenses. I like that um, Jesus scatters all its gloom, day of triumph in the skies. Okay, let's read the next, or actually still looking at this section. Look one chapter ahead though. Jump to chapter 45, verse 22. And there's a connecting thought that he's going to lead into. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Here he says, you know, Jacob, my servant Israel, I won't forget you. I've slept your offenses away. Return to me, I've redeemed you. And Judy mentioned, you know, that's our sins, right? Can't we say he's redeemed us and he invites us to turn to him? Well, that's where he's leading. When we get to 45 verse 22, we'll see that. Turn to me and be saved all you ends of the earth. So we can be sure this return, this call to return to God is for everybody. Okay, let's read the next two verses. Someone want to read verse 23 to 24? Okay. Turn to me and be saved, Luke 23 and 24. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow, by me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, the Lord alone. Yeah, that, that sounds familiar because I, I was working on that earlier today. Verse, you were in chapter 2045, right? Yeah. We don't move that fast. <laughs> well, you didn't say go back to 44. Yeah. My fault. All right, so verse, chapter 44, verse 23. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, ye mountains, ye forests, and all your trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. Uh, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things. Who alone stretched out the heavens and spread out the earth by myself. I will pause there. Thanks. <coughs> so why does the title, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb, what does that say to you about your God? He knows all about you from yeah. creating you. Yeah. The, that goes all the way back in your history. Not like all of a sudden God came you know, as a part of your life when, when you started hearing about him. No, who formed you in the womb? He's the one who redeemed you. Yeah. What else does it say about your God? So that's true. He's, he's always loved us. He's always had a plan for us. If he's formed us in the womb, that plan has been carried out throughout our life. <coughs> Any other things that says about your God? He's loving. Okay. Yeah, we are sinners, so he had to redeem us. Even as we were formed in the womb, he knew we would sin, but he redeemed us. So life is so lost that it had to be purchased back, bought back by God. Other things it says about your God. All these are good truths. If he speaks about forming someone in the womb, what does that say about unborn life in God's sight? It's precious. Yeah. So un unborn life is precious to him. God doesn't simply say, well, when you reach a certain stage of maturity, then you're valuable. No, he, he 
counts us as his own, forms us even in our mother's womb. He's always loved us from the, the moment we began to exist at the moment of conception. Yeah, lots of neat truths we can draw from just these couple verses where he, he reflects, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb, the maker of all things, uh, starts to get into the power and yet he's made you his own, he's redeemed you. Okay, so we, we get another call for praise here, starting at verse 23. Shout for joy, you heavens. Shout aloud, the earth. Burst into sunny mountains, you forests, you trees. Why? Because he's redeemed Jacob. And he displays his glory in Israel. So when God acts on behalf of his chosen ones, his redeemed, uh, those whom he loves and who by faith have been called to know and be his own, the rest of creation rejoices at that thought and praises God for what he does because he is gracious and abounding in grace and love. All right, let's read uh, verse 24 to 28. I know we already read 24, but it also ties in with where we're going. So someone want to read those verses 24 to 28? Bill, you got it? This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who foils the sides of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, of the towns of Judah, they shall be built. And of their ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Who says to Cyrus, here is my shepherd, and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. Thanks. So we got nine relative clauses. The Lord who and then describes him according to his actions and his character. Uh, as you look at those important truths about God, after he says, I am the Lord, what are some important truths listed in those, those nine clauses? He's the maker of all things. Okay, so the maker. He's going to say that a lot in Isaiah because the other idols, you know, the false gods, they do nothing. And that's both for the comfort of God's people. If, if he's the maker... He's the one who can control what he has made. Okay, so the maker makes him stand out from the idols. What else makes him stand out from the idols here? He listens to his people and hears their cries. Yeah. So he is the God who his people can cry out to and they'll hear. Yep. If there's a, a false prophet trying to do something and they have a plan, what does God do with it? Destroys. He foils, destroys the plans of the false prophets. So not only are the false prophets unable to do something, God is able to stop whatever they say they might do. God is, has power over it. Verse 26 talks about divine inspiration, right? So who carries out the word of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers. So not only can God thwart the word of the false prophet, puts down the idols, but when his servants speak, he puts power behind their prophecy and he fulfills what he has them say. So when he speaks, he fulfills. Yeah, all these, these clauses really accomplish how he stands out. When we get to verse 28 though, something really ought to stand out. Who says of Cyrus? Cyrus is mentioned now by, by name. A couple of hundred years before he's born. Right, so Isaiah wrote in 740 to 680 BC. Cyrus doesn't make this decree and accomplish God's purpose until 539 BC. So we're talking, you know, four or five generations before Cyrus is even known by anybody. Here he's listed by name. How could this have been written by Isaiah? Divine inspiration. Just what he said, right? Who fulfills the predictions of his messengers. Oh, by the way, I'm going to name this guy who doesn't exist, Cyrus, because I will fulfill it. So Isaiah writes long before Cyrus even comes onto the world stage. 
we're talking nearly 200 years, 180 some years-ish, and God says, I fulfill the word of my messengers, and I say of someone named Cyrus that he will accomplish what I please. So what's especially comforting about the fact that prophecy can be so specific? It comes God. Only God could do this. He, he emphasized that in Isaiah's prophecy that, hey, if, if I'm going to tell you what's going to happen beforehand, I alone can do that. Let, let all that he, he calls that courtroom scene, right? Let all the other gods come and give witness. What have they foretold that was so specific that came to pass? I foretold this. Yeah. He also promises us heaven. So we have specific promises from God. We know they can be fulfilled because God knows all things. He fulfills what he promises, as he did with Cyrus. We're soon going to see some pretty specific, you know, going on what, what Pat's saying there, we're going to see some pretty specific things later on after this time about the Messiah, which God fulfilled. What are some of the, the other specific details in Scripture we can just quickly brainstorm and list? So he mentioned Cyrus by name. Jerusalem. Okay, so your walls, Jerusalem, are going to be rebuilt. Oh, actually, at Isaiah's time, they haven't even been destroyed yet. So he says, one, these people, these Assyrians that are threatening you, they're not going to harm you. He destroys the army of the Assyrians, but you will have your walls destroyed. The Babylonians will come. He actually mentions the Babylonians by name, too. Uh, they were on the world scene at this time, so they would have known of the Babylonians. But the Babylonians never would have seemed at this time to conquer the great city of Nineveh and overthrow Assyria like they ended up doing. So he foretold the coming of the Babylonians. He foretold the exile. He foretold the return from exile. Uh, so as, as all this is happening to God's people, they don't have to think, did God make a mistake that we are now in a foreign land? No, he didn't make a mistake. Oh, and more than that, he promised we'd be brought back. And here, even being brought back, he names the, the person who would do it. We're going to see a lot more of that as we get into chapter 45. Yeah, and, and when it comes to the Christ, think of the specific prophecies for the Christ. He would be born in Bethlehem, right? He would be brought out of Egypt and face a time in Egypt and so forth. He would be called a Nazarene. is isn't written in the prophecies that we have, but the New Testament writers reveal this, this was fulfilling Either it meant he would be a lowly person, as was prophesied, or literally there was a prophecy they had that he would be a Nazarene. Okay. Um, this is the first time that Isaiah clearly indicates the temple would be destroyed. Look at verse 28 again. He says of Cyrus, he's my shepherd, I will accomplish all that I please. He, Cyrus, will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. It's almost like it's implied in that statement, but how can Jerusalem be rebuilt unless God is actually going to have it <coughs> torn down? So this is the first time that it's clearly indicated by Isaiah that the temple would have to be destroyed and then rebuilt. Good news came at the same time as bad news. It's almost like God kind of softened the blow when he, when he tells them through Isaiah, oh, by the way, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. Wait, God, what do you mean rebuilt? It's going to be destroyed? I, I thought... <laughs> So, good news and bad news all at once. Is that what you mean when the beginning where it says things will get worse before they get better? Yep. <laughs> That's kind of it. So, let's see if we can break down some more verses that show how they both have law and gospel at the same time. So, Genesis 3.15. How does that have law and gospel at the same time? Both bad news and good news. Someone want to read that for the group? This is actually the, the first announcement of, of God after the curse, or when the curse of sin entered this world. The first thing that Adam and Eve hear. <clears throat> Got it? And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. You will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Yeah, the you there is the devil. So, kind of bad news. There's going to be warfare, hostility in the world. The devil, it says your offspring, so the offspring of the devil, really, unbelievers, 
and the offspring of Eve, believers, are going to be, they're going to be in hostility. There's going to be enmity on the earth. It's kind of bad news. Also bad news that the offspring of the woman, that's he, he's going to be struck on the heel. So the, the one born of the woman who would destroy the devil would be himself wounded and struck. So bad news, but what's the good news? The one born of the woman is going to put an end to it, right? He's going to crush the serpent. So both law and gospel. And it, that gospel there is specific of there's going to be someone born in this world who would destroy the devil. And yet there's going to be conflict, warfare. John 3.16, both bad news and good news, right? So whoever believes in him will not perish. That's, that's our, our state. We deserve to perish. Uh, will not be condemned, but have eternal life. Good news. And it's through faith. And once again, it's centered on the one who was born, right? God sent his son, his one and only son. He is the one who would crush the devil. Also, Romans 6.23, both law and gospel, bad news and good news. Someone have Romans 6.23. Okay, Pat's got it. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, just crushing news. The wages of sin, what we have deserved is death, but the gift is eternal life in Christ. That's kind of a segue, but I just wanted you to, to recognize as the people heard that, let it be rebuilt. Good news. Tied in with the punishment is the gift. The gift which we'll read on that God does without cost. He freely sends restoration for Jerusalem. Okay, we've got to review this section. Actually, page 24. Let's just, I have it that we're reviewing all the chapter. So we're going to review, if you can recall last week, we went through the first 20 verses, all of Isaiah 44. So what's the line of thought? Can someone summarize for us the line of thought presented in this chapter? Maybe you want to scan through it. Being chosen, no idols. Sure. So Jacob is chosen, Israel is chosen. And God's going to give them something, right? He says, I'm going to pour out my water on the thirsty land. I'll pour out my spirit and I'll increase your descendants. So there we have first line of thought is God promised to send his spirit and increase his church. And then verses six through eight, you talked about the idols, right? So if God's going to build his church, what are those who oppose God going to try to do? They can't do anything. There is no other rock. Idols are nothing. Their treasures are worthless. They're, they're ignorant. People blindly and foolishly try to craft their own idol and they forge it with a, their own strength. And oh, by the way, they're going to heat themselves. Remember that, that picture? They're going to use that same heat that they use to make their, their idol to eat their meal and to warm themselves. And what's left over of the wood they make with the fire and the other half they make with their idol. So idol worshippers are blind and foolish and they, they can't even build anything real themselves. And then what we looked at today, when false prophets speak, they fail. When the Lord speaks, it happens. You know, you could uh, kind of demonstrate faith here. Up to this point, well, nobody has ever seen a triune God, any human person with God, right? Yeah. No one can see God in the. Is believing something you can't see. Idols are things you can't see. So if you can see it, it's not a God. Right, you get to, actually, you're, a, you're in Isaiah 45, verse 15. He says, Isaiah says, Truly you are a God who has been hiding himself. Our, our God is a hidden God. And it's on the basis of faith, and we'll see as we look at chapter 45, through his word he reveals himself. No, you're, you're anticipating, you must be reading Isaiah on a regular basis, right? No, but... You're anticipating exactly where Isaiah is heading. Idols are things you can see, you can touch, and you can see how powerless they are. The true God, by his word, he reveals his power, and you see he accomplishes all he says. Yeah. And Pastor, 
And on verse 6, uh, 44, it says, I am the first, I am the last, there is no God but me. And then you go to the end of verse 8, and it says, is there any God but me? There is no other rock, I do not know any. Right. So that makes it pretty plain. A, a key focus in this chapter is it centers on, on that thought. If you're going to break it down, this chapter is God's the only one. He can build Jerusalem. He can send his spirit. He can cause it to increase and grow. Try to make your own God, but it's going to fall over. It's going to be worthless. It's going to be pathetic and pitiful as you try to construct a different God. Yeah. We talked about how you know people make their own gods, even with secret idolatry, what they put their trust in, and how deluded and pitiful that picture really is compared to the Lord pouring out his spirit and the power of his word making his church grow. Okay. Uh, the picture of Jerusalem being restored by Cyrus is a specific prophecy which God used to show he's greater than idols. You know, when, imagine when he restores Jerusalem, how they might have been tempted to think, oh, Cyrus's gods, they're really something. Or, you know, Cyrus himself, he's, he's a great man. But God says, no, I, the Lord, have foretold this. I have done this. I made the way for Cyrus. It's a great comfort for Israel when they trusted in this promise. Can you give any definitive and clear-cut promises in Isaiah which comfort you? So that was comforting for Israel, that Cyrus himself did this, as God foretold. What are some other detailed prophecies from Isaiah, just really detailed, that give you comfort? Well, everything in your applies to us today. We can certainly appropriate all these truths to us today, but think of some of the prophecies about the Messiah from Isaiah. Some of them come up at Christmas time, some at Easter, some on Good Friday. We haven't gone through a lot of them yet because we're only at, what, five chapters in our study right now. My, the servant, we are his servants. Uh, we're still his servants. He's chosen us. And several times in this chapter, he calls them servants. Right. We are too, I think. Yeah, that God still has his church serving him, and it's still around. He says, don't be afraid. I will uphold you. He's he, always with us. That, that picture of upholding the church is what Jesus told his disciples, that the gates of hell won't overcome it, that there are still those who are God's witnesses, and he's still sustaining across the whole world throughout time and history, his church. Yeah, that's... Fairly detailed, if you'd say that God would have a servant. Um, do you know the prophecy of the virgin birth, where that comes from? Yeah. Isaiah. Uh, Jesus' passion, where it says he's led like a sheep to the slaughter, yet he did not open his mouth. Isaiah. Jesus' resurrection and exaltation after the suffering of his servant, he will see the light of life. Isaiah. If you look at chapter 53, the second half. Uh, the glory of heaven on which will soon be ours. The picture of the lion lying down with the lamb. The picture of you know, the forever resurrected people of God living with their God. Isaiah. All those are detailed prophecies about the Christ found in Isaiah. It's, you know, this is not a book about Cyrus. God's simply using Cyrus to say, Hey, you see what happens? When I speak, I fulfill. So when I tell you about my servant Cyrus, he did it. What about when I tell you about my servant, the Holy One of Israel, and the details I give you about him and what he will accomplish? So Cyrus is merely what God chose to be a, a springboard, a picture for people to take confidence and take heart. When I tell you what, what my servant's going to do, you can, you can believe it will happen. Yeah, the, all the pictures of the work of Christ are found as we go forward. We'll, we'll have opportunity to see that in the prophecies of Isaiah that the glory of Israel would go out to the world. You know, the coming of the Magi from the east, Isaiah. You know, the light dawns and that the people, the Gentiles flock to his glory in Israel. It's all found in Isaiah. So what we're, what we're having here is you might say, well, why should we care about Cyrus and the restoration of, from exile? It was meant to tell the people that the rest of Isaiah's prophecies are golden. If, if God speaks, he fulfills. So which of those prophecies are 
the most significant comforting to you, the, the ones I listed about Isaiah's prophecies about the virgin birth, uh, God with us, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, Jesus' passion, his resurrection, his exaltation, uh, him resting and ruling over all things, the restoration of the new heavens and the new earth. We got to see a little bit of that. The promise of the pouring of the Spirit, which we read in the previous chapter. Which of those are most comforting and significant to you right now? Those specific prophecies. We know they will be true. You know they'll come to pass. Hard to pick, isn't it? Hard to pick. And they all feel like a big blanket that wraps around me. <laughs> you know, if, if you're wondering, do we have a Savior, and then you contemplate the, the virgin birth and the incarnation as we do at Christmas time, that God became like us, that's how much he would keep his promise, that the Son of God came to this world and took on flesh, or what the incarnation means, that God with us, and the virgin birth, that, that he chose to lower himself, though he's the creator of all, to be our redeemer. Or you look at the, the passion that when we feel guilty, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Or when we're wondering about the, the way the world is, you know, people are dying when, when dams burst and tens of thousands are saying maybe die and fires and hurricanes and tornadoes, you can say, there'll be a day when those vipers won't harm or destroy on God's holy mountain and peace will reign over all the earth. Just whatever you're facing, turn to these prophecies. God has the, the answer you need. Look, for, yeah, they are to be received in faith. Um, you can look in faith. Some people will say, oh, this whole Cyrus thing, that didn't really happen. They just added that after, and Isaiah wasn't really written at that time. Well, yeah, you can reject it in unbelief, or you can in faith marvel. God knows, and he fulfills it has to be by faith. I want to focus also now before we leave the chapter, and especially verse 21, where he says, Remember these things, Jacob. Namely, the specific promise God gave that he would cause Israel to increase, and that a man named Cyrus would decree the temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt. What specific things must we remember which are foretold as we live in these end times. Remember these things. What do we need to remember in the New Testament church? We so, will never be forgotten. Sure. Just like the Old Testament church, we need to remember as we face trials, God will not forget us. He tells us not to be afraid and that uh, His Spirit is going to pour out on us and the Holy Spirit is going to guide us and direct us. Right. Directly from chapter 44, that I will pour out my spirit. We need to remember that. God is fulfilling that right now. We talked about started at Pentecost especially, and it's still happening as his church continues to grow, and he equips his church. Yeah. <coughs> In the end times, there will be false teachers. Many will abandon the faith, but the church will stand. Remember that. God says... Um, in the end times, there might be kingdoms and governing authorities that are opposing, false teachers are opposing the church, but Jesus lives. Remember that promise. And he rules over all things for his church. Things might seem terrible, but Jesus will return. Keep your heart focused on the hope of his return. Our bodies might suffer and grow weary, but remember, the dead will rise in the last day. There'll be a restoration and a resurrection, a new heaven and a new earth, our eternal home. Remember these things. So Israel found comfort as they remembered the restoration of Jerusalem. The church today remembers how that ultimately is fulfilled in the restoration of God's kingdom and through his servant, Christ. Also, when so many churches, so-called churches, storing God's word, rejecting parts of the word that God says, Jesus yeah, remember these things, including my word, as he says in chapter 40, um, endures forever. The word of our God stands forever. Everything else will pass. Okay, any other thoughts on chapter 44 as we wrap it up? 
We're going to get some interesting stuff. Just, just the first seven verses in chapter 45, quite interesting. So we just had him list Cyrus by name. He's going to do it again. And now he's going to describe Cyrus for us. History records that Cyrus actually was shown this prophecy when he entered into um, the city and the, the people of God that were there that had Isaiah's prophecy in exile were able to show him, hey, we were expecting you. And he was amused and he, he thought highly of, oh, that's kind of nice. But history also records that he still held on to his false gods. He didn't acknowledge that the Lord alone was God. Even though, as we see in Chronicles, as he decrees that they can return, uh, he invokes the name of the Lord, but he really viewed the Lord like one of those, you know, those local deities. So he wanted to get all the local gods in his favor. Uh, but he didn't realize, as God says, though you do not acknowledge me, I'm accomplishing my purpose through you. Okay, so Isaiah 45, let's read uh, verses, let's just read verse 1 to start with. This is what the Lord says to his anointed. Remember, anointed means Messiah. And maybe your translation even has that, or Christ in the Greek. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so the gates will not be shut. So he once again lists Cyrus by name as the one who's going to conquer and liberate for the people of Israel so they can rebuild. What does God say he's going to do for Cyrus? Grasp his hand. I'm going to take hold of your hand. Basically, that's meaning I'm going to give you power, right? Right hand is a symbol of power. Subdue nations, disarm kings, open yeah. doors. Subdue nations, disarm kings, open doors. Sounds like he's going to get everything, right? You can keep on reading up to verse 4. Um, let's go verse 2. I will go before you, I will level the mountains, I will break down the gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. So Cyrus is going to march through the gates of cities and God's just going to break the gates open for him. Verse 3. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. So God's going to give him strength. God's going to give him open doors, an open pathway. God's going to give him riches and treasures. Um, Cyrus actually did make a decree to the Lord's credit. We read in Second Chronicles 36, it says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him, and let him go. Notice, <coughs> the Lord his God. Cyrus doesn't say the Lord my God. So Cyrus made a decree that the people of Judah and Jerusalem could return and rebuild. Nonetheless, Cyrus, he didn't really acknowledge the Lord as the only true God. God did all this, as we read in verse 4, for the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, I've chosen. I summon you, Cyrus, by name, and bestow on you a title of honor, though, as we read here in Isaiah 45, verse 4, though, Cyrus, you do not acknowledge me. Sure, Cyrus mentioned the Lord, but he didn't give God credit for all the conquering he did. Cyrus didn't acknowledge and say, it's in the name of the Lord that I'm attacking you. No, Cyrus gave credit to his deities and his gods. He did not acknowledge the Lord. And that's maybe one of the most striking things about this. God used an unbeliever, an unbeliever who didn't give him credit to carry out his purpose and even calls him his anointed. Why would God call Cyrus his Messiah or anointed one? Right. We have to say here, anointed doesn't mean necessarily believer. And servant of God doesn't even have to be believer. Well, you know, consider what Paul says in Romans 13. Um, all authorities are called God's servants. So it shouldn't be striking if Cyrus is called a servant of God, even if he's not a believer. But yeah, God specifically names him. So he says, you're, you're the one I chose. 
I, out of all the, the nations around, I chose you to, to accomplish this for my people. Uh, you might say, you know, God chose Pharaoh during the time of the Exodus. He said, you know, I'm going to give glory through his name. Even though Pharaoh never believed or acknowledged the Lord, even though Pharaoh's magicians would say, this is the finger of God, they still didn't believe and acknowledge the Lord alone as God. Yeah, we actually found a cylinder. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. Um, it was discovered in 1879. And what, what's interesting is we can find stuff like this because the, the Persian kingdom, the way that it was destroyed, some of those cities were not completely rehabilitated but covered over. So the archaeologists were able to find this Cyrus cylinder. It clearly indicates Cyrus was not a believer when you look at the Cyrus cylinder. Cyrus says he was divinely sent, but by a false god. So we have evidence both from the rest of Scripture, really, and from history that Cyrus did not acknowledge the Lord, as Isaiah says. Cyrus was a Jew, right? And Cyrus was not a Jew. Oh. Yeah, he, and that's you know, all the more striking. Uh, god names an unbeliever who comes from Persia. He was a, a king of the Persians and the Medes. And the way that you look at, he comes into the city. This is kind of interesting. The gates literally were opened. He didn't have to siege the city and, and you know, ram the gates open. He was able to march his troops, troops right in. I'm going to read from uh, the section here on your paper here, from Herodotus. In the reverie in Babylon, on the night of its capture, the inner gates leading from the streets to the river were left open. For there were walls along each side of the Euphrates with gates, which, had they been kept shut, would have hemmed the invading host, that Cyrus and his army, in the bed of the river, where the Babylonians could have easily destroyed them. Also the gates of the palace were left open, so that there was access to every part of the city, and such was its extent that they who lived in the extremities were taken prisoner before the alarm reached the center of the palace. And we can read in the book of Daniel, uh, about how they're feasting that very night. And Daniel has, you know, God give them that warning uh, that your time has come to an end. Apparently the people so hated the Babylonian rulers by this point that they just decided to let the Persians march right in and welcome them with open arms. Mm -hmm. And that was God's working, God's plan, that this would be a complete overthrow. Um, Herodotus also says, um, regarding what the Bible calls here gates of brass, so gates of bronze, verse 2. It says, according to Herodotus, Babylon had a hundred massive gates, 25 on each four sides of the city, as well as their posts of brass. So it's recorded by the Greek historian Herodotus, um, he writes about 425 BC, so he's writing maybe about 100 years after the events. But still, 100 years after, that's pretty close compared to where we stand. So for whatever you take it, Herodotus is what you might describe as an unbiased historian. He's not writing as a Christian or trying to prove anything here, but he's saying, oh, this, this was what the city was like, this uh, Greek historian. He's not an Israelite. Herodotus, and he describes the conquering just like the Bible does, that God would open gates of bronze and the gates would not be shut and doors would be opened before him. So history testifies that what Isaiah prophesied for Cyrus took place. Also, verse 3, he says, I will give you hidden treasures. Cyrus obviously was able to loot the secret riches stored in the palace. Palace doors are right open. What often motivates ungodly governments? Money, Money power, and riches. So Cyrus was motivated not to, oh, I'm going to serve the Lord, I'm going to fulfill scripture. He was motivated almost like God put the bait and hook before him. Hey, there's riches there. They're ripe for the taking, Cyrus. So what seems to motivate governing authorities today? <laughs> Hasn't changed, right? So even if our governments today are motivated by greed, we still pay taxes, of course, right? We can still have confidence that in the end, God will accomplish his purpose. 
even if the, the governing authorities being led along by greed, that God still, despite their greed and their, their misguided motives, God will work his purpose in the end. So did Cyrus know the Lord? Can you differentiate between knowing the Lord in faith and knowing about the Lord? I think he knew Yeah. He didn't see himself working as God's servant. I think we can add verse 5 here. Uh, verse 4 said, Though you do not acknowledge me, Cyrus. Verse 5 goes on, I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, you could say Cyrus he's talking to, though you have not acknowledged me. So once again, God emphasizes twice it's mentioned Cyrus will not acknowledge the Lord. And yet, he's mentioned by name. It's described in fairly good detail how Cyrus would accomplish and carry his things out. So he didn't know God. He didn't have faith in the Lord. He still knew and heard of the Lord, especially after he had conquered those lands. Uh, you could say the same for other godless rulers. They know about the Lord, but don't know the Lord. Pharaoh said that. Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Pharaoh knew. You know, he had enslaved millions of Israelites. He knew they worshipped the Lord, but he didn't care about the Lord or trust in the Lord. So... <clears throat> Um, it, we read in 2 Chronicles 36, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heavens, has given me all nations and earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him. May the Lord his God be with him and let him go. So he acknowledges the Lord, the God of heavens. That's a title that the Israelites proclaimed with the Lord. But that's not Cyrus saying that in faith. Would you give us that verse? Second Chronicles 36, 36. Starting at verse 22, you'll find that decree recorded in Scripture. Okay, verse 6, God says, Why does he do all this for Cyrus? Not for Cyrus's benefit. Verse 6 so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Verse 7, just to finish this section up, because this is where I'm going to break it. I form light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. So, Cyrus is going to do extraordinary feats. Did the people rightly recognize who exactly is responsible for bad things that happen in the world? When God can say here in verse 7, I bring prosperity and create disaster. You know, a lot of times you hear, well, that was a coincidence. <laughs> If you were sick or something, that's just the naughtiness coming out. <laughs> the naughtiness coming out. It's just like the uh, dam that broke in, uh, was that Morocco? Morocco had the earthquake. But the other um, country had a dam that broke, but the dam was made of mud. Okay. So people find fault with the people who made the dam. Like Hurricane Katrina, they blame the government for the levies not being reinforced. But all of that was still God's plan. Right, so we don't blame, we can't blame God for evil. Although if you read this verse, verse 7, I bring prosperity, create disaster, the word there is create, and the word for disaster could be translated, ra, I believe in Hebrew, as evil. Calamity is a good way to also translate it. But, you know, I think he uses those things to draw people closer to him because I don't see anybody calling on the devil when they're about to die. So <laughs> if you're about to drown. Right. Uh, so, you know, take death in, into the example. Do we blame God for the why we die? No, but does God take our life? Yes. yes. 
so we can't put God as the source of any wrong or bad, but he still ultimately is the one who is working and controlling and in authority over all. So God can say, I bring prosperity and create disaster. After all, wasn't it God who sent the Babylonians to destroy them? He did it. And wasn't it God who gave Cyrus the ability to conquer the Babylonians? So we have to distinguish, you know, not giving God the blame for evil, but when calamity happens, acknowledge God is still in charge. Uh, think of the book of Job, for example, right? Consider God's the one who said to the devil, you know, consider my servant Job. Oh, oh yes, you can go this far. God set the limit and allowed Job to attack, but ultimately God doesn't get the blame for what the devil was doing. God simply used those to accomplish his purpose. You had a thought? Well, I was going to say death is a blessing. No more pain. After that, then it's eternal life. Well, to die is to gain. I wouldn't call death a blessing. Well, to die is to gain, to gain, though. Yeah. It, death is a curse. You know, the, the fact that we face it and our bodies grow weak and die. We don't want to reframe that as, as some might that, oh, it's just part of the natural process and it's an escape. No, it's an intrusion. It's a curse. It, but well, for, for us as believers, like either, <laughs> right, for us as believers to die is to gain because of Christ and what he's done. Um, you know, go to 45 verse 11, ties in with this section because he says, um, Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? Now, even though God causes calamity, that doesn't mean we have the right to blame him or question him when it happens. We live in a, a sin-cursed world and that's our fault. And yes, the, the curse was pronounced on us, but we brought it. It's our own wages. We deserve it. And, and God is the one who sends the, the chastisement and punishment and condemnation because of sin. And he rightly does so. We cannot blame him. So, two verses that tie in with this. Um, do we have time, though? Yeah, we do. James 1, verse 13. And Lamentations 3, 33. So just on this topic of God causes evil and prosperity, disaster and calamity, and how do we, how do we reconcile that? So in James 1, verse 13... You know, letting scripture speak for itself. James says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Then James goes on to describe sin as born from our own evil desire, and that leads to death. So God is not tempted by evil. That we need to remember, right? Uh, some people wrongly accuse Christianity and many faiths that are you know, based off of this all-powerful, all-benevolent God and say, well, what about all the evil that happens? Does God just stand by and watch that? God does not desire that anyone perish. And God will bring about justice. But until then, we can only say God is not tempted by evil. He does not delight in evil. Also, uh, Lamentations 3.33, what do we see there? Someone had that? Remember, this is uh, in the interim of Isaiah's prophecies. After Jerusalem is destroyed, you get Lamentations 3.33. This is an important truth to remember. And this is after they've experienced what, what Isaiah says, that Jerusalem would need to be rebuilt. It's destroyed. So we read in Lamentations 3.33. Someone have that one? Okay, Verda. Certainly it is not what his heart desires when he causes affliction, when he brings grief to the children of men. Yeah, so does God delight in evil? No. And notice it says he brings affliction, but he doesn't willingly do that. His heart is grieved. You know, what it says once God saw the world and it was filled with evil and he sent the flood, his heart was grieved at that. And it's not he who is to blame for the evil or the affliction, but he does send it because it's necessary when there is evil in the world. Go to verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? And he, the Lamentations, why should the living complain when punished for their sins? So we have no right to question our Maker or why He does what He does in a sin-cursed world. But we do know, even though it comes at His hand, 
He does not delight in evil. Okay, Cyrus will accomplish extraordinary feats with almost ridiculous ease. Notice, though, what the Lord says here. If you read through 45, 1 to 7, look how many times it says, I, I, I. God says, I will go before you. I will break down gates. I will give you hidden treasures. I summon you by name. I am the Lord. I will strengthen you. I form light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I do all these things. You'd think that the people would be tempted to think Cyrus was their hero. Note the emphasis of the Lord, though. What comfort does that offer God's people? Yeah, even, even as it seems like, oh, the, the powers of this world are just ruining everything. God is going to do it. God's in charge. Yeah, you can, you can kind of give them credit and say, okay, this nation, this politician, this person did something, but if anything's going to accomplish what God's church needs, it's going to be God himself behind it all, and he's the one who's doing it all. Um, we, we need to know that God will build his church, and uh, we don't rely on governments or leaders or good economics so we can afford a new building. God's going to make his church grow. And he will make his name known from the rising of the sun to its setting. We don't have to count on governing authorities of the land to allow God to do his mission work or to accomplish his purpose. Um, I think maybe we'll pause here. I was going to have us look at some other, some other truths regarding civil authorities, how God is in charge of them. Yeah. Three, thirty-three and thirty-eight is where we're looking. Yep. So we're going to see as we read on. God has a bigger audience in mind than just Israel, but it starts with Israel. If He can give Israel this comfort that He is doing this for Cyrus, Israel is supposed to take that knowledge, take it to heart, and carry His word before the world boldly, as He gives them further promises. So next time when we pick it up, we're going to meet and we're going to talk about a little bit more about this. That, you know, if God uses Cyrus, how, how often does he do that? Does he use governing authorities for his purpose? We're going to look at some other times in Scripture he talks about that, uh, even if they don't acknowledge God, but he still uses them. So God who directs the destiny of nations. We'll pick it up there next time. Um, just a quick note that we're not going to meet next week. I'll be out of town but we'll plan to meet again in two weeks. Any other closing thoughts or comments from what we read today? Yeah. Just a question. When it says that God does not willingly, willingly do this to his children, is that because that's how he set up the earth in the beginning? And then since our sin, he's almost obligated to, I mean, because he, he has to punish sin. It's, I, I, I mean, did he set up a, a system that right. he just can't go back on because he's God? That's no, not that God trapped himself. In that God knew from the foundations of the earth that the Son would be slain for us. You know, just that all the more magnifies his grace. It had to be this way. But we can't, you know, create this paradigm where God kind of trapped himself. Oops, I got to no, right. punish him now. Yeah. He's absolute justice, so he knew justice would have to be met. And the mystery of God is that he still wanted to create this world even knowing what it would cost him, and that the love of God would be magnified and that he would meet that justice for us. Yeah. And it, it really fends off, it fends off that false notion, too, that, that God is like, he set up a trap, and he's like, gotcha, and I just love to watch sinners suffer. He doesn't. Uh, he's a God of mercy. And, and yet, and yet, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So he's also a God of justice. Isn't that just like with Saul and Gomorrah? He did have compassion on um, Lot and, and, and let them live right. instead of just destroying them and everybody. For those who did die, it was their own fault, and God had no choice. Uh, they were going to remain his enemies, and that's how they died, as his enemies. But he did not desire that. 
He wanted to rescue those who repented and who trusted in him, like, like Lot, even though they hesitated and, and held back. Yeah. I was going to say, I was thinking the same thing as Martha, because the word unwillingly makes you think that he's forced <coughs> to do something against his will. But I think it's more that he doesn't take pleasure in doing it. Right. God desires, we know what he does desire. He desires repentance and that everyone comes to faith. So, yeah, that, that Lamentations verse kind of frames how we should understand when it says, I create disaster. He doesn't do that with a malicious intent that he just enjoys watching people suffer. He does it because he's just and because probably if it's a believer, the same reason we would punish our children. We know it's for their good that they experience something that will lead them back on the right track. So for unbelievers, it's for justice. For believers, it's to guide them and turn them, to make them turn back. Okay, let's close with a, a prayer regarding what we looked at today. Lord, we marvel that you chose to reveal the man Cyrus long before he came for the benefit of your people and as you say that all may know that you alone are God. And you accomplished everything you said for him, that you opened doors, you broke down gates, and you allowed him to subdue kings before him. We know and recognize it was not simply the king of Persia who did all this, but you, who are working behind history for the benefit of your church and the good of your people. Help us, like ancient Israel, to take comfort that you control all history, and that when you speak and prophesy, you fulfill. Bless us now as we look at the times around us in these end times and to take confidence in your specific promises and your working until all history comes to its end when your Son re returns, just as you promised. Amen.